Well, morning, everyone, and uh, welcome back to a fresh new semester. Uh, it's great to be underway again, but at the same time, it's not the semester any of us thought we'd be having six months ago. And uh, I know that many of us already feel weary, uh, discouraged, uncertain of the future, uh, and it's day two. So I thought it'd be good today to think about God's gift of joy. Uh, not just any old joy, but the joy the Spirit gives us when times are not joyful. My text uh, is a little psalm designed to spark joy. Uh, it's what you might call a Mari Kondo psalm. Uh, it's built around just two images, an image of remembered joy and an image of anticipated joy. So uh, let's just pause and ask for God's help as we hear his word. Father, open our hearts to receive your word. Show us today what it means to be joyful in unjoyful times and bring forth in us this fruit of the spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you'd keep your Bibles open to Psalm 126, uh, you'll see that its first image there is in verse one and it's an image of remembered joy. We were like those who dreamed. Now the songs of ascents were sung by people traveling to the Jerusalem temple. And this group of pilgrims has been through a lot. Uh, they had been living as displaced people in exile, their homeland in ruins, but God had brought them back to their land and returned to dwell among them through the rebuilt temple. And that's the joyful memory that kicks off this psalm of the Lord restoring the fortunes of Zion. So what did it feel like having your life given back to you, having your God draw you close to him again? We were like those who dreamed. It's that sense of uh, unreality. You know, it all seems too good to be true. And then the joy. I don't know if you've, I'm sure you have, had moments of relief so strong that they affected you physically. You know, when you, I don't know, left something precious and irreplaceable on the train or an airport and you rush back and it's still there, you know. <sighs> yes, that is the, the relief and joy that these pilgrims are remembering. Verse two, it's, it's about more than just happy thoughts. Happiness took over their bodies their mouths, their tongues, it poured uncontrollably out of them. It's a joy that God sometimes gives to a person when they turn to Christ from a life that's burdened them with guilt. Think of someone like John Newton, the slave trader who wrote, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. For the singers of this psalm, the joys of their salvation were not just about being forgiven in the abstract. They were actually things you could hold in your hand. You know, living in the land again, farming, building, enjoying family, gathering to worship. And for the surrounding nations, this was a pretty convincing demonstration that the Jewish God was powerful and benevolent. And at the end of verse two, you can see these pilgrims sort of tasting the nation's reaction. I'm going to give you a rare sermon illustration. Imagine a police constable right, who slaves away at night after work studying 
for exams, doing extra training until finally he gets his promotion. So he walks into the station the first day in his new uniform and someone says, uh, morning, Sergeant. And he just stops and he's like, say it again. Morning, Sergeant. Yeah, Sergeant. Yeah. Now that is exactly the mood of verse three. Yeah, the Lord has done great things for us. It's the taste of joy. Now, there are two things about this joy of salvation that I think are significant for us. The first is that intense joy is rare and it's special and it's worth remembering. And nothing is more precious than being overcome by the joy of our salvation, by the fact that Christ didn't die for the world in some abstract sense. He died for me, of all people. The sins that lie so heavily on me are not only forgiven, but forgotten. To have the joy of your salvation overwhelm you so that you're like someone in a dream, that is really precious, but it's rare. Actually, if that was an everyday experience, we'd be exhausted, wouldn't we? And what's more common if the singers of this psalm are experiencing, uh, and we often do, is, is remembered joy. Of course, they're not just remembering the joy in isolation, they're remembering the event and the joy together. The reason that we gather as Christ's people week by week is to remember an event, like Christ's death, his glorious resurrection. But one of the things that Christians can do when we meet together in church, for sure, but also informally with Christian friends and family, is to remember gospel joys that we've shared together in the past. Times when some of us came to Christ, times when some of us were delivered from trouble and sorrow, times when some of us shared spiritual awakenings together. Pull out those memories because they are testaments to the power of God. When you remember what God has done for you, make sure you remember the taste of joy that goes with it. The joy of salvation is worth remembering. Second thing I want to say about remembered joy is that joy has a power that we shouldn't underestimate. One of the differences between us and the pilgrims in Psalm 126 is that the reason for our joy is less obvious than it was for them. God is present among us by his son, the Lord Jesus, not by this huge temple. And unlike a temple, Jesus is not visibly present. He's here now in the person of his spirit within us. And that means that unbelievers can't look through the doors of a church and see Jesus and say, the Lord has done great things for them. But what they can see is our joy. There's a little detail of the text I actually skipped over before, and that's the order of verse two. You notice in verse two, they're not happy because the nations recognize God's power. It's the other way around. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Then it was said, the Lord has done great things for them. Right? The joy of the saved is one of the pieces of evidence for the reality and greatness of God's work. So let me encourage you, when you share your stories of God's work in your lives, make sure that you share the joy as well. Because even though it doesn't prove the truth of the gospel, Joy does bear a powerful testimony to its truth. And that's not just important for the unbeliever, it's important for us as well. 
So that's the first image of joy in unjoyful times, the image of remembered joy. The second is also an image of joy, but of joy anticipated, because the singers are actually at a point in their lives where joy seems impossibly distant. Zion's fortunes may have been restored, sure, but their own fortunes have collapsed. Now, we don't know exactly why, maybe they're in the middle of a drought, but I actually suspect the last two verses are a poetic way of describing a deeper crisis. At this point of their history, Israel was experiencing a crisis of failed expectations. Sure, many Jews had returned from exile, but hadn't the prophets promised so much more? Where was the worldwide triumph of the Lord? Where was the pilgrimage of the nations to worship him? Where were the new heavens and the new earth? The comparison that dominates this second half of the psalm is like streams in the Negev. Now the Negev is this hot, rocky, yellow desert with steep canyons that cut down from flat-topped hills. There are scraps of vegetation in the dry stream beds and that's about it. But the poet chose this image because of a rare and spectacular Negev phenomenon. I saw it on YouTube once, I've never actually been there. Uh, it's just a mobile phone upload. Um, it was dry, hot, I think, uh, some dark clouds in the distance, a bit of thunder, but no hint of rain. Uh, and there are these people standing in a dry stream bed and their eye catches distant movement. And you, the YouTube viewer, you're not sure what it is at first, but then you hear the sound and you realize it's water moving quite sluggishly, it seems, but then it's their feet. Then all of a sudden it's a knee height, it's roaring and they're scrambling for higher ground. And that is how these singers are pleading for God to restore their fortunes. Miraculously, suddenly, overwhelmingly, bringing life into their dry, thirsty existence. Life that makes the desert bloom with flowers and puts a song back into their hearts. And of course, the source of this life is God. Jeremiah calls God the spring of living water. And what the pilgrims in verse four are really praying for is for God himself to come back into their lives. So what's happened to the overwhelming joy of verse one? You know, it's not just that they're having a bad day or feeling a little low. God's presence seems to have evaporated. They wake up each morning dry, joyless, abandoned. The thing is, though, they haven't quite given up because they're still praying. Restore our fortunes, Lord. They don't give up, but they press on in tears. Now, sowing in tears isn't just about crops. It's about the way they live their lives. When joy has fled away, they sow in tears. Now, prayers feel meaningless, but they pray anyway. Church feels pointless, but they go anyway. God feels absent, but they remember him anyway. Godliness seems a waste of time, but they resist sin anyway. Now, I'm not sure if that's determination or desperation, but I admire it either way. Uh, what I think is more of a puzzle is how they can be so confident that they will definitely reap with songs of joy. And if you look through the end of the psalm, they actually get more confident as the song finishes. 
See verse 6 repeats verse 5, but doubled in size. Now their confidence is growing from a little trickle to a huge flood like, like a stream in the Negev. Now where does that come from? I think the clue lies in the songs of joy, which get mentioned twice in verses 5 and 6. So what are they? Well, on one level, of course, they're the songs that go with the great harvest, but they symbolize the joy of God's nearness specifically the song of joy that they sang back in verse 2. Those songs of the impossible dreamlike joy that overwhelmed them when God forgave their sins and drew them back to himself. These pilgrims are going through a bad time, but they're headed in the right direction. They're headed towards Zion and the saving presence of God. And though God seems far away, they've been remembering that he is their spring of living water, that he never runs dry or fails. It doesn't matter how tough things are, because God, the spring of living water, will return like streams in the Negev and water their world once more. It's who he is. Well, that's a psalm. What about us? As I said at the start, I think this psalm is a tiny little poem designed to spark joy. Uh, first of all, to spark remembered joy as we look back at God's work at the resurrection, at Christ's work in our lives together as his people, but also to spark anticipated joy, especially in hard times. Um, anticipating joy is a really important spiritual discipline when times are tough. I don't know if you're like me, but I certainly feel that life is less rewarding these days. Church is less rewarding. College is less rewarding. You know, we know in our minds that the unity of the spirit doesn't depend on physical proximity, but that doesn't stop the joy and enthusiasm just draining a little bit out of our fellowship. It doesn't stop us wondering sometimes what's happened to Christ's presence in our midst. If we look further afield, we live in a world and a society that rejects Christ and despises his people. That can make it pretty hard to feel that our mouths are filled with laughter. Where's the presence of Christ in the world? Where are the great things that Jesus promised would happen when he rose from the dead? Where's his return? Where's the every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord? Well, it is exactly in times like that, that our God is a stream in the Negev. Remember what Jesus told the Samaritan woman, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So as we look forward to an uncertain future, this psalm reminds us that God's spirit rushes into lives that are dried up by unbelief and rebellion, and it makes them blossom with faith and joy. The disappearance of COVID won't do that. The restoration of normal life won't do that. God does that. He does it through our tearful prayers, through our Christ-shaped lives, through our faithful perseverance. He does it mysteriously, but as surely and certainly as he did when he raised Christ from the dead. Psalm 126 doesn't mention death, 
but I think it's there in the background. That image of verse five, sowing with tears, is also an image of death. In 1 Corinthians 15, remember what Paul says. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. We need to remember that God is in the habit of rushing in where life and hope have drained away and bringing new impossible joy. And it's the sure and certain future of each person who trusts in Jesus. So be encouraged, brothers and sisters, in these hard times, let me urge you to imitate our dear Lord Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, for the joy set before him scorned its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a spring of living water, that you bring life and joy where there was once only death and sorrow. We praise you for the joy of our salvation. And we pray that in the months and years to come, you'll continue working through your weak and often weary people to bring joy to the world and glory to your name. Amen.